O God, that you would purchase us by the blood of your Son. Lord, we do not deserve this. We are thankful. We glory in you and we gather to praise you this morning. And so, God, be glorified now in the preaching of your word. Ready us to hear it and believe it and walk in light of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Children, you're dismissed. The rest of you may be seated. As they go to the rear, let me also once again remind uh, the covenant members of Restoration Church, tonight is a family meeting. You have the great privilege and responsibility. It's a big responsibility. Jesus said that he would build his he would build his church, advance his church. And we do that in part by these members meetings. We have four a year. And so you get to protect the gospel by gathering and praising. Not to mention, I just would like to see you again this evening. So uh, we're back into the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, back into the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, the, the book of Ephesians is a letter. Uh, we call it a book. It's a letter that was written to a local church. Um, this letter was written roughly 62 A.D. by a guy by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul uh, was actually a hater of the gospel, becomes a lover of the gospel, uh, and he takes three different missionary journeys. On the second of those missionary journeys, he stops off in this town of Ephesus. Uh, this is round about 52 A.D., and uh, this is a big town. It's an internationally known city at the time. It would, Ephesus would have been sort of like Beijing or London or New York of today. It's now a city in ruins. I think it's in Turkey. So now a city in ruins. You can take off. Uh, AJ has been there. You can talk to him about it. It's just a city in ruins sitting there. Uh, Paul starts a, a church in that city on his second missionary journey, kind of starts the work and really hangs out for three years in this town. Uh, on his third missionary journey. He loves this church. He started this church. He planted this church. You go read about Acts 19, crazy stuff happened in this city. Um, And as the church has moved on, the city has collapsed, and just as Jesus promised, as I said, the church moves on. And so Paul is writing to this city, or to this church in this city. The church is probably less than 100 people. Uh, we don't know, we normally think of these churches in the Bible as really big churches. Most churches throughout all of history and today are less than 100 people. This would be a mega church. This is probably a bigger church than the church that Paul's writing to. And the heart of his, uh, uh, letter that we've just a review where we've been, the heart of his letter can be found in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. And let me read that for you. Here's what it says. Paul's writing to this church. This is sort of the heart of the letter. According to his purpose, which he, that's the Father, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So what Paul just said there is in Christ, he's bringing heaven and earth together. Isn't that what everybody on planet earth wants? Perfection on earth, all the good, all the love, all together as one. Paul says But God says this is God's authoritative word for us. And he's saying to us, that's what he's doing in Christ. And he's doing that through the church. The church is made up of people, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that have been saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ, not of any works, lest anyone should boast, but only in him, trusting in him, not any works of our own. They're born again. They're gathered together as a church. And through the church, this is chapter 3, He's expressing his manifold glory. He's showing heaven out in front of time. That's his whole heart. And then he moves into what this looks like in chapters 4, 5, and 6. All right? So chapters 1, 2, and 3, this is the identity. If you have the the Ephesians card, this is identity. This is who you are. This is who you are as Christians, those that are in Christ. 
And then four, five, and six. All right, so this is how you work out who you are. All right, and that leads us to chapter five, verses one to fourteen. Now I'm going to do something strange. I thought about this this morning. Hopefully, this will be helpful to you. I'm going to start by reading one verse in chapter two, verse twenty-one, and then I'm going to go to five. Paul says back there. In whom, <clears throat> let me back up to twenty. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. You heard Berkeley pray for that. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows. He's talking about people grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you, that's a you all from the south, y'all in him, y'all, the church are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Chapter five, verse one, therefore. Got to get that before you get to what we're going now. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. If I could redo the sermon title, it would be children of love. Children of light is true, too. But as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Big idea this morning. Loved ones love as Christ loved. Loved ones love as Christ loved. Or you could say, back to the children of light, you are light in Christ, so shine His light out. Big idea, loved ones love. Now it's fairly easy to see what Paul's doing in this passage, right? <clears throat> if we look at chapter 5, verse 1, since God is your Father, Christ is, as it were, your brother, love like them, live like them. That's what he means by walk. Imitate them. How do you do that? Well, that's the rest of the passage. But before I get to the commands to imitate God and walk in love as Christ loved us, let me ask you a provocative question. It's a question that I think is important for us to think about. It's really important. So I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to leave a moment of silence. I just want you to listen to your heart and see what comes out. Before we get to the command, the command is clear. It's not hard for the preacher to know what to say here. Imitate God. Love as he loved. So here's the question. Do you want to? 
Do you want to walk in his love? Do you want to walk as he walks? Do you want to imitate him? See, it's easy to point to the text and tell you to do it. It's not hard. And also, many of you know that you should. I know that I should do this. But those are not the questions I'm asking. I'm asking, do you want to? And as far as I can tell, there's three ways to answer that question. Yes, yes, I want to. No, not interested in it. And the third one that I think is probably most common in this room, I don't really know, but I want to want to. That's where I would probably be in the third quarter as it relates to some things. And so if you're in that second category of no, no, I don't want to, then this sermon is going to be boring and frustrating to you. The stuff that we're going to especially talk about sexual morality and these kinds of things. But you need to be intellectually honest if that's you. You just need to know that your desire to work this stuff out is not because it might not be good. It's because you just don't want to. So I'd encourage you to repent of that and ask God for grace to give you a desire to want to. But if you're in those first or third categories, that is, you say, yes, I want to, or, you know, it's hard, but I want to want to. Listen, let's start by saying you're in a good spot. Let's go ahead and acknowledge that's the grace of God in your life, that you want to obey him. Just acknowledge that right from the beginning, that you want to want to. That's a good spot. So my next question is, though, why do you want to obey him? Why do you want to imitate him? Because if your answer is so that he'll love me, then you're starting from the wrong spot. Even if you say you want to, but you say the reason why I want to is to earn his love, that's not the Christian understanding of obedience. That's religion. Every religion on planet Earth basically operates the same way except Christianity. Every religion in the world basically says, listen, here's a bunch of stuff you need to do, and if you do them good enough, then I'll love you. God will love you, and I might let you in. But that's not the gospel that the Christian believes in. Christianity says that in Christ, you're loved. By grace through faith in him, you're completely loved. Therefore, out of that love, you operate out of that love and you actually go on to obey. So you don't earn God's love. You can't earn God's love. By grace through faith, you receive that love. And so if you want to obey to earn God's love or someone else's love, your desire to obey is starting in the wrong place. And it'll be really frustrating. As we say a lot around here, Christianity is a terrible hobby. It's a terrible hobby. Receive the gracious gift of the free love of God to sinners. Purchase, guys, without price. And so if this isn't it for you, you want to obey or you want to want to obey, and it's not to earn His love, then what's the reason why you want to obey? What is that for you? Here's the way that I hope that we would answer. It's the way that I believe the Lord would have us to answer in imitating Him and loving Him. He wants us to imitate Him because we believe He's worth it. Because He's worth it. Because you love Him. You trust Him. You've seen that. He gave us His Son. We can love Him. We can trust Him. We can believe that His ways are the best ways. We can trust His love. We can trust His character. So we work it out. So since Christ first loved us by laying his life down for us, we are convinced that his ways are the best ways. They're not just the right ways. They are that, but they're better than that. They're the best ways because he's proven his love for us. They're the ways that our good and loving God meant for us to enjoy his life and love in this world. And so, guys, here's why I'm starting off this way. 
Because if we lose sight of that, then all of these other commands are going to frustrate you because they're already hard to do. But if you keep those things in mind, you're going to have the fuel, you're going to have the reasons to push through and do the right thing. So you've got to keep that in mind. Keep that in mind all through the rest of this passage as we work through it. Because again, if things are going to be hard, he's worth it. I don't take out the trash in my home. I don't sweep the floors. I don't occasionally wash the dishes. Don't like washing the dishes. I don't do all of these things because I like it. Right? Nor do I do all those things in my home because it's just the right thing to do. Sometimes that's the way I do it. I do it because I know my wife likes it. I know that it makes her happy. I know that it's a way to love her. And because she's worth it, and I want to love her, then that's why I do it. And that's the way it is in the Christian life. The call to imitate God and love God and neighbor is hard. You can see that there. Look at verse 2. It's sacrificial to do this. It's sacrificial. So the reason why we obey is not to earn and it's not to do because he just told us to. We imitate and we love because we love to do it because he so loves us. We do it because he's worth it. Thus, Paul's words in verse 10, I love this, try to discern what is pleasing to him, what is pleasurable to the Lord. He's so pleasing to us and so convinced of that pleasure, we want to do nothing but just what pleases him. So I'm going to preach the rest of this sermon as though you agree with that. That you believe that God's worth it. These commands are hard, but we need to imitate him. And we want to imitate him. Or we want to. Uh, Because we believe, as it says in verse 9, that he is good, right, and true. And so with that, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are now ready for the command. God has loved us, Restoration Church. He has proven his love for us, that he's good, that he's right, that he's true, that he's worth it. Therefore, be imitators of God. As though you are his beloved children. Act like your loving dad. Walk in his love. Or as the word says in verse 8. Walk as children of the light because you are light. You're no longer in darkness. Work out the character, the love, the light, the life that God has worked in you as his beloved son or daughter. Image him. How do you do that? Well, first off, to image God assumes that you know him. I'm tempted to walk down that path, but I'm just going to acknowledge it and step away from that path. All right. For you to imitate God, that assumes that you know him, that you're pursuing, that you're trying to understand him. You love the things he loves. You hate the things that he hates. You're trying to figure that out so you know how to imitate him. Octavius Winslow says that few people are acquainted with God because they don't take the time to acquaint themselves with him and come to know him. You've got to acquaint, you've got to know your, your Lord if you're going to, Work it out. But I'm going to step away from that path. I'm going to walk down a different path. All right? Back to the question. How do we do this? How do we imitate it? Walk in his love. The answer is right there in verse 2. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you can imagine this passage sort of like a conversation between us and God. God says to us, be imitators of me as my beloved children. And we say back to him, okay, God, how do I do that? He says, by walking in his love. By walking in my love, he says. And we say back to him, okay, what does it look like to love? And the Lord says back to us, well, love like Christ loved. And we say, well, how did Christ love? And God says, well, he gave himself up for you as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to me. We then say, okay, that's helpful, Lord. But could you be more specific? Yes. 
No sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, not even name, no filthiness, all that stuff. Rest of the chapter. Got it. Thank you, Lord. See? Now we can pray and go home. Somehow it's going to take me 45 minutes to get through the rest of this. So Lord gives us a lot of help in this passage. He puts illustrations on top of his commands so that we know what it looks like to respond to his love by loving. Notice those as statements. Circle those as statements. There's three of them in there. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us. Verse 3, but sexual immorality, impurity, covetous must not even be named as is proper among the saints. So in this great of the Lord, he wants you to know what to do. He does want you to know why to do it. And then thirdly, he gives you illustrations as to how to do it. So kind of the Lord to do that. So let's drill down on that second as statement, because I think that one is largely governing the rest of the passage, helping us understand the rest of the passage. We're told to be imitators of God since we are beloved children of his. In other words, love as though you were loved by the one that is love. And the way that we see what love is, is by looking at the gospel. That's what verse two is doing is the gospel. The way we see what love is by looking at the gospel. Guys, get this into your hearts and heads. This is important, this definition of love. We live in a culture that loves love. How could you not? Love has come to be the kind of great trump card of our cultural moment. As long as you can use the word love in a sentence to justify your behavior, you'll be seen as having the strongest argument. That is, except if you understand love to disagree with certain culturally accepted behaviors. But regardless... You'll notice, though, even though love is oftentimes used, it's rarely defined. It's seen as the great justifier of all kinds of behaviors, but it's never defined. It's largely used to validate. So if we're going to be people that imitate God as beloved children, walking in love, we need a good definition of love, and it's right there in verse 2. Here it is, verse 2. We walk in love as Christ loved we, by giving ourselves up or sacrificing ourselves as a pleasant sacrificing for others. To God. Did y'all see how I got there? For others to God. We sacrifice ourselves as a we pleasantly, sometimes it's hard, pleasant, fragrant offering for others to God. This should be familiar, right? Fulfillment of the law is what does Jesus say? Love God, love neighbor. He's just doing the same thing. That's what love is. We imitate God as beloved children by walking in his love. How is it we love? When like Christ we give ourselves up for the good of others, to the ultimate aim of the glory of God. Personal sacrifice for others to God. That's what love is. That's what love is. So my working definition of love is love is choosing to excite life in another for God at the cost of myself. Love is choosing to excite life in another. We need a good definition of what life is. We're not going to do that now. But love is choosing to excite life in another for God at the cost of myself. All right. It's a good definition, I think. You'll notice I'm trying to emphasize the decision to do this. Our culture wants to emphasize the feeling, but feelings are so unreliable. The feelings catch up as we do this, I should add. So love is not primarily a feeling. It's a choice to sacrifice uh, for others to God. So this is how we became beloved children, right? Beloved, we became beloved through the gospel and the gospel defines love. And so the gospel is God in his infinite grace, sending his son who lived a sinless life that by his grace and for his glory on the cross, he atones. That is, he pays for all of our sins. 
He is buried and rises on the third day, showing his triumph over sin and death, that those who respond to it, we have to respond by grace through faith. We trust him. We are, we, we are entering into that love and become his children by trusting that gospel. So this gospel then is the power of the Christian life. That is, that's how we came into be beloved children. The gospel is the pattern of the Christian life. It defines how we love. And isn't this great? The gospel is the pleasure of the Christian life. Right? It shows us what is all that is good, right, and true. Verse 9. So Christ then is not just a philosopher. He's not just an ethicist. He's the Lord and lover of our lives. Therefore, by beholding Him, we have the power of a holy life, the pattern of a holy life, and the pleasure of a holy life. So many of us grew up on Christian preaching that ran to these commands and just told you what to do. And they didn't sit and remind you why and how good God was and how you can trust them to do them. The kind of preaching that I grew up on was just like that. Don't be sexually immoral. Okay, I've got to work really hard to be sexually immoral this week. That never works. Right? Here, Paul is laying out for us the beauty of God, the power of salvation in God, not in ourselves. We can work this out. It's right here in front of us. So by now, in light of understanding what love is and what love does, these other commands should begin to be more clear to understand why they're there. Because, as 1 Corinthians 13.1 says, that if we do a bunch of religious stuff and have not love, what does he say? Noisy gong, clanging cymbals, worthless. So this stuff that he's laying out here is what it means to be love or to not love. So let's now look at those commands. You ready? We're going to sift all these things through this love that God has defined for us, walking in it. So we must not, note that language, must not have sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness, not even be named, or some your translations say hinted at among you, the church. So not even named or not hinted at, that expresses the goal of our life together as a church. He knows it's going to be a struggle, Paul does. So he doesn't want you to say, he doesn't want us to believe as a church that sexual immorality is going to be hard. So listen, do the best you can. How do you think that would go if that was the command, right? So he's giving you the goal. God made us to be holy. He's holy. We should be holy ourselves. He's sexually immoral. Therefore, we should be sexual moral. And how is it that sexual immorality is not walking in love? That's a good question to ask. Why is he? What does that have to do with the fact that it's not walking in love? Well, in our sexualized culture, where sexual sexual liberation, liberation has become the kind of law of the land, we need to first acknowledge God is for sex. He loves it. He's for sex. He loves sex. You want to know why I know that? Because he made sex. He's the one that is inventing it. He's doing it. This, he's for sex. So, uh, However, like everything else, though, this design of sex is just that. It has a design as a way in which it's supposed to be imaged. He didn't give the good gift of sex to mankind and say, do whatever you want with this great gift. He's not like, here's a Ferrari. Ride it how you want. Take it off road. You know, do donuts all the time. Whatever. It's not what he says. And yet the reality is people do see sex in that way. Which is similar to, say, taking a shovel and using it as a hammer. You can do that, but that's not what it's for. You can use an airplane as a car, and it'll get you to where you want to go, but that's not why an airplane was designed that way. 
So you can have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, but it's not what it's made for. Like everything else, there's a design to it that promotes, don't forget this, promotes our good and God's glory. There's true love in it. And you don't have to look far to see where that love-laden, God-imitating design for sex can be found. Just slide down there in verse 22 from chapter 5. You'll see it right there. And we see sex is designed for marriage. And you'll notice in verses 22 to 25 that marriage is when one man, a husband, and one woman, a wife, covenantally bind themselves together under God. And it's designed this way by a loving God. It's so important to hear this, guys. It's not a socially constructed repressive idea. Sex is designed this way by a loving God in order to picture Christ's loving relationship to his wife, the church. That's what, the, that's what it's doing. That's what marriage is doing. That's why sex is created that way. And you'll see this more in a couple weeks. But for now, notice down there in 22 to 25 that marriage is, as we would expect, when a husband and a wife do as Christ did, 5-2. They sacrifice themselves to their spouse for God. That's sexual morality. That's walking in love in sex. When in marriage between a man and a woman, the one, the husband and the wife are sacrificing themselves for their spouse to God in his ways. That's sexual morality. Sexual immorality, then, on the other hand, it abuses God's loving design by inverting sex onto self. Instead of it being sacrificial for another to God in marriage, It becomes for me and to me outside of marriage. That's sexual immorality. It's for me because it's done out of a hunger to please my desires, not my marital spouse as true love would have it. And it's done to me because it's done to fulfill my hungers, not to honor the Lord and His design in marriage. And so for that reason, when any kind of sex, be it heterosexual sex or homosexual sex, when it is used outside of the marital covenant, it cannot be said to be love since it opposes the design of God who is said to be in or the very essence of love. He defines love. No matter if you use that word, it can't be what it is. And so hopefully by now you can see that the Christian sexual ethic is rooted in the good character and love of God. The Christian sexual ethic is rooted in the eternal character and love of God. The Christian sexual ethic is not some antiquated relic that was constructed during the Victorian era. Many people would have you to believe that. It's a good gift from God to be enjoyed like all of His gifts in a particular way. One person has said it this way. They says, sex is like fire. When it is contained in its right place, it can bring warmth and comfort. When it escapes its proper environment, it can do serious damage. The safety of a marriage covenant is the place for sex. Anything outside of that will cause pain and destruction. And friends, isn't that exactly what we're seeing in our culture today? Just proliferation as it relates to uh, sexuality. Pain, brokenness, abuse, destruction, divorce. The more that we've tried to reduce sexuality to this strange word to, of consent, which in and of itself is not clear. We've tried to reduce good sexuality to consent, which is not as clear. It's just produced more pain and brokenness and destruction. We need a better understanding of what it is and what, how it makes it good. 
And so as a result of that, brothers and sisters in Christ, control the fire of sex in your hearts. Hate pornography. Hate lustful thoughts. Fight against them. Develop countercultural practices to, pro- to protect the love of God in your heart and to protect others in that love when it comes to sexuality. Develop countercultural practices and values and beauty in your heart and soul that promote health. But also, not only learn to put those things down, also learn to love modesty and chastity and fight for them. I'm so thankful for the ladies of our church that promote modesty. And they do this well. We should always be folks like that. And and I'm also sure that my sisters in Christ are thankful when men don't act in a way that is sexually or emotionally enticing. I'm also encouraged by others in our church that have guidelines in their relationships with other sex that promotes the way of love. And so think about these things because, guys, the society is trying to give you their convictions. They're trying to give you their definition of love and sex. And it's happening all the time. You don't know it. Remember the Mazda commercial last week? Right? You don't even realize they're changing your understanding of love and sex, but it's happening all the time. It's more covert ways. I was just thinking about this morning, this new kind of Christian movie. It's great. It's good. You should go watch it. But it's very obvious what they're trying to say. The world didn't work that way. They're trying to do it subvert. They don't want you to see. They're sort of like, you know, look over here. Let's change them over here. Right? You've got to be attentive. They're trying to shape you. So learn to see God's design for sex and marriage between a husband and a wife as good as right, as true, as loving. Verse 3, as is proper among the saints. Learn to see it as walking in love. Learn to see any perversion of that design as opposed to love, even if they use the word love. And guys, let me say something right here. There's no middle ground here. I get the desire to try to straddle the fence in a world that's, that's increasingly difficult to maintain this ethic. We try to kind of have our foot in both worlds, but there's no option. We cannot. Romans 1.32 makes this crystal clear. We cannot approve evil. Not even a hint. There's either Christ's design for sexuality is good, right, and true for all of humanity, or it's not. It can't be relative to what individuals think it is. You can't say it's sort of right for me, but not for them. That's not universal if you're saying that. We need to recognize this conviction is going to cost us something. Who knows how much? And so that's why you're going to have to not just obey and not even just want to obey. You're going to have to see why God's worth it to work this out. You see? He's love. He's life. He's light. But Paul does not limit his talk just to sex. He also mentions impurity. That's a really broad word. God is pure, therefore, if we are to imitate him, we are to be pure, not impure. That is, those things that God created and said are good, they're to be treated as good, as pure, insofar as the design he gave to us. But when God's gifts get turned in on self, those things become less about sacrificing ourselves for the good of others to God, and at that point they become impure. The same could be said for covetousness. Look in verse 5 there. Paul explains that covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry is when we have anything, we treasure anything in our hearts above the greatness of God. We don't normally think of covetousness as idolatry, but of course it is. In the West, when we think of idolatry, we tend to think of 
sort of false idols that other places and other peoples in the world bow down and worship to. So I can give you an example. This is a quick story. Uh, I went to India one time, northern India, and I'm traveling in India, and we're driving through the streets, crazy streets. Uh, and in the midst of these crazy streets, I, I looked in some of the homes, and I saw these sort of wooden carved blocks of wood that were in these images that people would see as idols that they worshipped. And I remember passing those things by, going, man, that's crazy. Why do they do that? Why would they think that's a good idea? What I failed to do, failed to realize, is that I got this box that sits in the middle of my apartment. And I promise you, especially on Saturdays in the fall, I jump up to that box. I bow down to that box. You know, you're watching the March Madness tournament. I'm jumping. I'm falling to that box on my table. See, just because it's not a con, uh, explicitly uh, a designed idol doesn't mean that it's not an idol. Remember, an idol is anything that we're treasuring above God. So my affection, which is strange and sadistic, to be a fan of Tennessee volunteer football, right? It's not, when, when it goes above the glory of God, I'm treasuring it above, then that's idolatry. That's covetousness. When I want a World Series trophy for the St. Louis Cardinals in 2019 to the point to where it's guiding my affections and having me to be impure, that's an, I'm coveting. When I want to buy stuff, go places, have a job title or a ministry that is so great and respected, that's idolatry. That's covetousness. Yeah, I have to have, no, that's not love. We all have them, right? Can we, let's just start a confession session, amen? Right? Whew, this is hard, right? So, see covetousness. Remember, just get this so clear in your mind. It's opposed to love because it wants something for self to self, not sacrificing for the good of others to God. Same could be said for filthy, foolish talking or crude joking. Working down there, verse 4, not walking in love as beloved children when we do these things. Now, by now, you guys should expect something, right? There's got to be something about filthy talking, foolish talking, crude junk. There's got to be something about it since it's not walking in love. There's got to be something about it that's for self and to self. Y'all should have that expectation by now. And think about this. Don't most comedians, don't they need to get laughs, don't they need... Foolish talking, filthy talking, crude jokes in order to get laughs. Isn't that that true for most comedians? I mean, with the exception of maybe John Crist, Jim Gaffigan, Jerry Seinfeld, and Brian Regan. With the exception of those guys, almost all of them, imagine taking sexuality, foolish talk, crude jokes, take them out of their entire comedy routines. You wouldn't watch them. You wouldn't be interested in them. And so, listen, I struggle with this, guys. This is hard. This is why I said at the beginning of the sermon, if you don't understand this stuff that God is right and good and, and, and true and loving, then God's going to seem like some curmudgeon, right? But he's not. He's good. He wants something good for us. Pay attention, then, to the comedy shows you watch. Pay attention to the jokes that you hear. Here's a big one. Pay attention to the political shows or websites that you peruse. Notice that there's often a select group of people that get made fun of or made light of or not listened to. Minorities is a big one. It's a big one here. So the, when we think about crude joking, foolish talking, the privileged class in our culture is basically this guy. You're looking at it. White, middle class, upper class dude. 
more often than not, they have more hair than I do, right? That's sort of, which is why bald jokes are funny, right? You can laugh. It's okay. I don't mind. Uh, so that's oftentimes seen as the sort of barometer. And so anything that doesn't fit that description is made fun of. They talk foolishly about it. They have crude jokes about it. Minorities are often are referenced here. Guys, I am ashamed of myself at the jokes that I laughed at and the jokes that I told when I was a boy about African Americans. I would have told you that I was not a racist, and yet I thought those jokes were funny and I made them. It's wrong. It's not love. Same for Hispanics. I can remember laughing at jokes and making jokes for Hispanic peoples. It's wrong. It's not loving. And I apologize as a representative to to, to all of those that are African-Americans and Hispanics in the room. I'm sorry. It's not right what I did. Same could be said for jokes about women. Jokes or foolish talking, filthy talking about women or also those with disabilities. It's wrong. It's not walking in love. Those that are too tall, those that are too short, those that are overweight, those that are skinny. I remember as somebody that was vertically challenged my whole life, I, I, I was made fun of, I was bullied a lot in middle school, and it was hard for me because I wasn't as tall as everybody else. That's foolish and it's wrong. It's not loving. It's not the way of Christ. Even those of whom we may disagree about various things, if we're making fun of them or making light of them, it's not okay. It's not loving. No matter what your stated position towards these groups, if you joke about these things, if you talk foolishly about these things, these people, uh, you're not walking in love. So we need to imitate God in these things. You cultivate lovelessness in yourself and those of whom you speak when you do that. And so don't tolerate foolish or filthy talking about minorities of any kind. With the arrival of social media, we have given a megaphone to the bedrooms of humanity so that they can use filthy or foolish talk towards those that are oftentimes, folks, they've never even taken the time to understand without repercussion. They are courageous in their bedrooms and cowards on the streets. They rely on stereotypes or they take their cues from cable TV news or, as is most common, their own cultural heroes that tell them what to think and what to say instead of studying Jesus. Instead of thinking about his kingdom and his ways and how he loved and what he loved. And so, beloved, do the hard work of getting to know others that are not like you and what your words mean to them and what they mean in general so that you can avoid all foolish or filthy talk and all crude joking. Let me give you one easy way to work this out. I'm going to speak especially to my white brothers and sisters in the room. Next Saturday, a week from yesterday, April the 6th, at Central Union Baptist Church. We've got information around here. If you want to know, talk to me. Please, RSVP, if you're coming for the love of God in Christ Jesus, help us know. Listen, this is a, a racial reconciliation event. It's a series event that we're working out. This is the first of all, and I'm speaking especially to my white folks because here's the thing. This event and these talks and these conversations about the history of racism and where we're going, they are not, hear me, they are not to make you feel guilty about being white. That's not the whole point of this. I don't feel guilty for being white. The point of this is to learn how I can love my neighbor better. That's the point. So if you want to know how to love minority classes, in particular African Americans of our city, come next Saturday. It's time well spent. Whereas we learn from others about this. And also, as we see there in verse 4, what seems to be an antidote to Paul is that we learn to be thankful. 
And we're going to talk more about this next week. You can look down there in chapter 5. You'll see we gets into thankfulness more. But I just want to mention it here. It's right there. We're going to talk about thankfulness. More thankful. The more thankful you are for those that are different than you, the less you will be inclined to speak filthy or foolishly about them. And also, when it comes to filthy talking, guys, just stop and think about those words that are used. Those words, those four-letter words, right? We know they're not just sort of randomly on some culturally approved or unapproved list because they don't like them, right? The reason why they're on those lists, not only do they sound bad, but when you slow down and think about them, they're terrible things. They're making light of people. They're making light of things that God made good or whatever the case may be. All at the expense of getting a laugh or communicating anger. Either way, they are not walking in love because they are not being done because they are being done, I should say, for self and to self when we use that. Or for privilege group, to privilege group when we use these filthy words. And so we as Christians, we rise above those things. We rise above prejudices. We rise above darkness. We rise above the kind of bad and foolish and filthy talk. And we are careful with our words. We are children of light, Paul says. We are no longer darkness. Our tongues, don't forget this, our tongues, as James tells us, is the most powerful weapon in our entire body. Just a word, we can haunt somebody for a lifetime. With just a single false accusation, we can send people to sleepless nights. I'm in, I'm in a relationship with a, with a brother, a pastor, a brother that I'm meeting with, and this brother's having chest pains, and he's having sleepless nights, and it's just tearing him up because some people made false, false accusations about him. Be careful with your words. Careful with your word. Recall, as Paul is in chapter 5, verse 2, that Christ sacrificed his privileged position in order to give good things to those that were not like him so that God would be glorified. That's the way we see the world. May the same be said of us that we're doing that. May we sacrifice ourselves and not promote filth and foolishness by trying to believe the best about one another. May we try to, may we be willing, may we be willing to look bad or lose cultural cachet so that all people, whether they agree with us or not, are not treated poorly, but instead they are treated with dignity and civility. This is walking in love. This is imitating God. And it's going to be hard, church family, but it's worth it because God is worth it. And it's going to be hard for two reasons. It's going to be hard, first of all, because the world around us is not going to hold to the same definition of light and love. They don't hold the same definition. In fact, I'm sure you've heard it before. The, our understanding of what we've said so far about what love is as it relates to sexual morality, they're going to define that as hate. It's going to be hard. They're going to try to intimidate us. They're going to try to shame us. They're going to try to maybe at sometimes take our jobs, take, take rights, whatever the case may be, whatever the case may be, but we cannot back down we have to be willing to stand in graciousness and humility and firmness because if we did if we collapse to the world as to what these things are we collapse to their shame we collapse to their intimidation we stop loving people even if they accept us do you see that Do you have a category for that it's also though going to be hard because the more that sin becomes normalized around us the easier it's going to be for us to be deceived Paul knows this, so he counsels the church. In verse 6, look there. Let no one deceive you with empty words. 
See, again, we have to think about the words we use, the words we believe. Just because everyone around us believes them to be good, right, and true does not mean that they are. And as it says down there in verse 16, the days are evil. And in chapter 6, verse 12, we live in a present evil age. We'll talk more about that later. But for now, don't be deceived by empty words. The reality is all of us, myself included, are currently being deceived by believing or valuing some empty words. And so that's why we need to be in the word. We need to be in the church, having people help us love the Lord, love other people so that we're not deceived. It's going to be hard to imitate God and walk in love because people won't see things as loving in the same way. They're going to seek to do us harm. And as things get harder, it's going to be easier to get deceived. And so how is it we know how to be more specific about this stuff in terms of how we walk in love? Look at verse 10. Come back to it. How is it when when we're not real sure? Look at verse 10. There's your antidote. Try, make an effort, and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, don't try and just see what you want to do or what's what you'd like to do, how you'd like this to go. That, that may, may map out and be the same. But try have a have a posture in those moments of trying to see what's pleasing to God in this decision. What's pleasing to God in this value? So few people are suspicious of themselves and society. And so few are actually confident that God's good and they want to try to understand this in light of His grace and goodness. And so try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord in your relationships, with your decisions about jobs, with your lifestyles, with this purchase or that purchase. Try to discern what's pleasing to Him. And I thank God this so often marks you, brothers and sisters. But may we continue, as the verse says there in verse 14, may we continue to be awakened O sleeper, arising from the dead, Christ shine on us. Don't fall asleep. If you were falling asleep, I was talking about spiritual stuff. But anyway, if that worked, here you are. I don't see anybody doing that for the record. So don't fall asleep. Be awakened to the values. That guys, again, we say this a lot around here. That's why this meeting is so important. Because it re this is the first day of the week. Feels like the last day, doesn't it? But it's actually the first day of the week. So it orients us towards the rest of the week. If we miss this meeting a lot, then our values, our things are going to get corrupt. It's going to be harder to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Anyway, this all goes back, as I said, to the beginning of the sermon. If you want, if you don't want to imitate God, walk in his love, it's going to be easy to be deceived by empty words. You won't try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord, and you won't go on living, and you will go on living in darkness and not ever really knowing the life and love of God in Christ. And as sobering as a reality it is, you need to look down there, friend, if that's you, you're actively deceived, not desiring to love God as the way that he has given. Look down there at verse 5 and 6. Those are sobering, hard words that you need to really wrestle with because they define you right now. If you live in deception, being a willing and unrepentant partaker of darkness, that's verse 7, partaker of darkness, that is you're sharing in darkness, you're hugging it, you're not trying to get rid of it. If you're unwilling to repent of sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthy and foolish talking, and instead you lean into those things, even if you take the name of Christ, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. And verse 6, the wrath of God remains on you. If I didn't love you, 
by telling you that that was in the Bible? Let me say that again. If I didn't tell you that, I wouldn't be loving you. So many churches in the name of love are sending people to hell because they don't tell them about this stuff. It's not loving. If you won't love Christ by obeying Christ, by turning from the sin that he died to pay for, you're left with no inheritance, no satisfaction for the penalty of your sin. You're left to pay for it yourself. And again, I'm not talking. Christians, listen to me. I'm not talking to those that are repenting of these things and fighting for holiness and love. I want you to note that word is there in verse 5. Who one is sexually immoral. You are in Christ. And so far as you're repenting and believing. So if you have participated in sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness or filthy joking, you're not marked by those things. You're marked by Christ because you're repenting and believing and trusting in him to be your representative, not yourself. Do you see the difference? If not, please come and talk to me. That's a critical understanding. Those that are repenting and believing, Paul is saying here, God is saying, those that are not living in deception, willing to turn away from those things, sacrifice for others to God, imitating God, not the world. Those people are in Christ and clean. But those that are not doing those things, God's word says there's no inheritance for them. No atonement, no forgiveness, no evidence of walking in the love of Christ, no evidence of turning away from self to God, sacrificing for, uh, for others for the good of the glory of God, not operating inside the life of his people to encourage. No inheritance, no forgiveness. But if that's you, listen to me. If you repent of that sin, turn away from that sin and trust in Christ, He will forgive all of your sin. He will forgive it all. He gave his son so that you don't have to pay for his wrath against your sin. You don't have to pay through your religious activities. All right. Christ has paid. So trust him to change you from the inside out. You can be forgiven if you would repent of sin. Believe in Jesus to change you, to change your loves, your lights, your appetites. He can do it and he has done it. So turn from sin, trust in him, be clean, come into his people, buy without price, know his love, enjoy him forever. Here's the great thing about God, guys. The reality is if you're lost, not in Christ, repenting and believing, I am going to love you. I'm trying to love you up here, but get this. I don't love you enough to give you my son. I'm not going to do it. I have two sons. I'm not giving either one of them to you. But that's exactly what God did. That's how much he loves you. Why would you not turn from sin and trust him and follow him and be saved? Whatever that struggle is, he's worth it. He's worth it. It's going to be hard. It's going to be real hard. But he's worth it. Don't be suspicious of his commands. See them as gracious gifts to the church so that she might walk the hard and holy road that leads to heaven. And I say all of this also, brothers and sisters, to us, church family. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Expose darkness. Don't walk away from it. It's a good command. Look at verse 11. It's a command there to expose darkness. Have courage to press into the darkness and bring the light. It says there in verse 13, this is a great uh, promise to hold on to in the midst of bringing light to darkness. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. You don't trust yourself. You trust the light in you. That's our job as children of the light. Not to stand, listen to me, not to stand on the street corner and yell down every darkness that passes us by in the name of Jesus. That's not our job. 
We walk in the light as he is in the light. We spread the truth by speaking the truth, living the truth to those around us. We imitate his gentleness, his humility, his love. We stand up for all that is good, right, and true. And soon enough, (laughs) darkness comes around us. And when it does, we stand up and speak. We don't have to go looking for the darkness. We don't have to go out into the street corners and shout it down. It'll be around us, and it is around you. Just be attentive to it. And we will need to have courage to speak up and expose darkness to light and be reminded that darkness cannot overcome the light of Christ. We must sacrifice ourselves for the good of those of whom we speak to, to God. And no matter what comes in response to that, insofar as our intentions are, our intentions are that, no matter what comes in response to that, be it justice or injustice, when we speak in, if it's justice or injustice that comes back, you please the Father. You do. They don't get this world does not get to define you. So have courage to imitate God and walk in love as is proper among the saints. Saints means holy ones. Be holy. Walk it out. Expose it as it comes. And so let me close here now. It's been a long sermon. We've walked through a lot. Restoration Church family, I want to go back to what I talked about last week, this forward vision. Never forget that these things that we've been talking about are talking about the way of love, reflective of the God of love as seen in Christ. They are to be seen, this church life together, this stuff, is to be seen as the world of love. And so our life together as a church is to be a life of loving kindness to each other, to the world. They're to be seen in our life together so that we might be a foretaste of heaven to come, a world of love. Where in that world of heaven, there's no sexual immorality there, there's no impurity there, there's no covetousness there, There's no filthy or foolish talking there. There's no crude joking there. And you think, some of you, well, that's going to be a bore. I guarantee it won't. It'll be amazing. And I can't wait for it. And that's the community. That's the worldview. That's the way we're trying to do this stuff. So that as we do this and live this stuff out, people would look at it and say, I disagree with them, but man, they love each other. There's something about them that seems right. That's the world we're trying to create by God's grace and for His glory. So we trust Him to live this out. Heaven is a world of love and we're trying to do that. It's that great passage. One of my favorite things from the sabbatical. I'll shut up here in a second. But this is such an important thing. So beautiful to me. I literally wept when I read it from Jonathan Edwards when he said in 1 Corinthians 14, prophecies pass away, uh, tongues pass away, love though never ends. And Edwards just said that the world of heaven is a world where everlasting love is happening. People in privileged positions are sacrificing themselves because of their love to help other people. And that's what we're looking for. That's what Paul's trying to do. Not give you empty commands to just will it and get it right. He's trying to paint a picture of the world of love of Christ for his glory. For the good of others, for his glory. Sacrificing ourselves that others might know and believe until we get home and we'll be glad we did it and we worked it out. Let's pray and ask him for help. We love you, God. We believe you're good. May we see you as good, as beautiful, as right, as love. And from that, obey your commands because we believe that they're good commands. Give us courage. Give us clarity. May we not be deceived. May we walk it out. In Christ's name, amen.